On today's podcast, I'll be playing the audio from the first of two live events I did with Richard Dawkins in Los Angeles last month. Now, these were fundraisers for his foundation, the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, which is also in the process of merging with the Center for Inquiry, making them the largest foundation for defending science and secularism from politically weaponized religion. Their work is suddenly even more relevant in the U.S. because although Trump himself isn't a religious demagogue, he's promised to appoint a few to the Supreme Court. And he's also put a creationist in charge of the Department of Energy, which both stewards our nuclear weapons and funds more basic science research than any other branch of government. So now we have Rick Perry in charge of all that. His immediate predecessors were each physicists. One was a Nobel laureate and... Perry is a man who, I would be willing to bet my life, couldn't utter three coherent sentences on the topic of energy as a scientific concept. So I would urge you to become a member of CFI or the Richard Dawkins Foundation. One membership now covers both organizations. And once you are a member, you'll occasionally receive action alerts requesting that you contact your elected representatives on matters of public policy. As many have noted, non-believers are somewhere between 10 and 20, 25% of the U.S. population. It's hard to know for sure, but we almost certainly outnumber many other subgroups in the U.S., and we are disproportionately well-educated, needless to say, and yet we have almost no political power. Right Now, this will only change once we make ourselves heard. So Richard was doing a speaking tour to raise funds for his foundation and for CFI. And he asked me to join him at one of these events. And our event in L.A. sold out almost immediately. And so we booked the hall for a second night, and that sold out too. And I'll bring you the audio from that second event in a later podcast. But as you'll hear, we had a lot of fun, and it was a great crowd. And it was really satisfying to have a conversation like this live, as opposed to privately over Skype. So um, as I'll say at the end, this has given me an idea for how to produce some more podcasts like that. And now I give you an evening with Richard Dawkins, the first night. Thank you all for coming. This is really, it's, it's an honor to be here, and it really is an honor to be here with you, Richard. I get to return the favor. He had me at Oxford, I think, five years ago. So welcome to Los Angeles. So I, I'm going to, this is going to be very much a conversation, but what I did, I, I was worried about this. I wasn't worried about tonight. I was worried about tomorrow night. My fear was that Richard and I would have a, a scintillating conversation tonight, and then tomorrow night try doggedly to recapitulate it word for word, <laughs> and, and yet feign spontaneity. And if you know my position online, you know, <laughs> that doesn't work. So what I did is I went out to all of you asking for questions, and I got thousands. And so I, I, I picked among what looked promising. So I can guarantee that the two nights will be reasonably different because the different questions will come up. But we won't hew too narrowly to the questions. We'll, we'll just have a conversation. But as we come out here, I find that I want to ask you, Richard, about your socks. And I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not know, sure what the question is. But um, I just come from Las Vegas, the conference of uh, SciCon. And one of the things we had was a workshop on cold reading, which is the technique whereby so-called mentalists uh, are supposed to read each other's thoughts. And what they're really doing is just simply looking at the clothes and the general appearance and uh, assessing it. 
And we had to pair off for this workshop. And I was with a, a, a nice young woman, and we sort of sized each other up. And I said to her, I think I, I'm getting that you come from somewhere in the west of the States. I think maybe, maybe not California, maybe a bit further north. And, uh, and of course, I was simply reading her label, which said she came from Oregon. Um, <laughs> um, and then she summed, summed me up, and she said, I think you may have some problem with your eyes. <laughs> um, maybe colorblind. And I, I'm serious about this. I'm trying to spread a meme for wearing odd socks. There's a kind of tyranny of forcing us to buy socks in pairs. Shoe, shoes have chirality. Left shoe and right shoe are not interchangeable. But socks don't. And when you lose one of a pair of socks, you're forced to throw the other one away, which is it's absurd. So what I want... Although, honestly, Richard, you just told me a story that suggests that shoes are interchangeable. Oh, my God, I, that's right. Um, that's rather an embarrassing story. Someone is going to find this on, the, the relevant yeah, okay. video I will, on, I will on the internet. I will tell the story now. You've let the cat out of the bag. Um, I was doing a television film called Sex, Death, and the Meaning of Life. And in the death uh, episode, uh, we were talking about suicide. And there's a famous suicide spot. It's a bit like San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge, where pe people have famously jumped to their death. And all around this place, Be Beachy Head, is a very, very high cliff in the south of England. There are rather sad little crosses where people have jumped off. Uh, and we were filming the sequence on suicide, and I had to walk very solemnly and slowly and in a melancholy frame of mind, past these crosses. And the camera was focused on my feet, walking past these little low crosses. And I felt incredibly uncomfortable. I had this sort of uncanny feeling of, of being uncomfortable, and I, I couldn't understand why. And then eventually, my, it was my feet that were uncomfortable, walking past these crosses. And eventually, the director called cut, and we went off, and I took my shoes off because they were so painful. And only then did I realize I put them on the wrong way round. <laughs> so this is preserved for posterity in close-up. I want to see that video. Someone the find that thing video. Is, none, of, none of the television audience ever wrote in to, to complain about this. So maybe this at least will arouse their attention. So the first question, Richard, which I thought could provoke some interesting reflection is, why do you both court so much controversy? And well, we don't do it. I mean, um, uh, we don't court it. it. It pursues us. Well, I think, I mean, what I've noticed is that there are undoubtedly people who are friends of ours, colleagues of ours, who agree with us down the line, who seem to feel no temptation to pick all of the individual battles we pick, and one doesn't have to be a coward not to want to fight all of these culture war battles, although it, it helps. <laughs> but there, but there are, we have friends who are decidedly not cowards, who, I mean, someone like Steve Pinker, he stakes out controversial positions, but he is not in the trenches in quite the same way as we are. And 
I'm wondering what you think about that. I mean, is, is it, did, you, did you see a choice for yourself? Do you find yourself revisiting this choice periodically? I, I think it's a perfectly respectable position to take that, that, that a scientist has better things to do. And I, I don't take that position, and I think you don't either. Um, I do think it's important to fight the good fight when we, when we do have, when science, when reason has vocal and powerful and well-financed enemies. And um, so I'm not sure what particular battles the questioner has in mind when he says we court controversy. Um, but I, I suppose I, I, I believe so strongly in truth. Uh, and if I see truth being actively threatened by competing ideologies which actually not only would fight for the opposite of truth, but would indoctrinate children in the opposite of truth, hmm. um, I feel impelled to fight, only verbally. I mean, I don't feel impelled to actually get a rifle or something. <laughs> well, there's time yet. <laughs> so well, I guess the, the, the dogma that has convinced so many fellow scientists and, and, and intellectuals, academics, that there is no reason to fight Certainly, one of those dogmas is Stephen Jay Gould's idea of, of NOMA, non-overlapping magisteria. That strikes me as a purely wrong-headed and destructive idea. Do you, you want to explain think that? I think so. Together? I think we probably agree about that. Non-overlapping magisteria. He wrote a book called, um, what was it again called? The um, Rock of Ages. Rock, rock of Ages, that's right. Um, so science has the age of the rocks and religion has the Rock of Ages. And, and the idea was that science and religion both have their legitimate territories, which they shouldn't impinge upon each, each other. Science has the truth about the real world, and that's science's department. Religion has what he described as moral questions and I think deep questions of existence. Meaning, yeah, meaning, meaning, meaning and morality. Yeah. Um, well, I would strongly dispute the idea that we should get our morals from religion. For goodness sake, let's, whatever else we get our morals from, it must not be religion. That would be, um, and if, if you imagine what the world would be like if we actually did get our morals from the Bible or the Quran, it would be totally appalling and was appalling in the time when we did get from the Bible. It is now appalling in those countries where they get it from the, from the Quran. So don't let's get our morals from religion. As for the deep fundamental questions, I take those to be things like, where did the laws of physics come from? Hmm. What is the origin of all things? What is the, uh, the origin of the cosmos? Um, what happened before the Big Bang? Those are scientific questions. Uh, it may be that science can never answer them, but if science cannot answer them, sure as hell religion can't answer them. <laughs> I don't actually think anything can, can answer them if, if science can't. It's an open question whether things like the origin of the physical constants, those numbers which physicists can measure but can't explain, the origin of the laws of physics, whether those will ever be explained by science. If they are, well and good. If they're not, then nothing will explain them. The idea, I mean, Steve Gould was, was, was careful to say that these separate magisteria must not encroach on each other's territory. And so the moment religion encroaches on science's territory, 
for example, in the case of miracles, then it's fair game for scientific criticism. Mm. But my feeling about that is that if you take away the miracles from, from religion, you've taken away most of, what, of why people believe in them. Pe people believe in the supernatural because they, they believe biblical or Quranic stories which suggest that there have been supernatural yeah. miracles. And if you, if you deprive them of that, then they've lost everything. To take Christianity as only one example, that, that has been spelled out in every generation. I mean, starting with Paul, he said, you know, if Christ be not risen, your faith is vain. Yeah, exactly, yes. Or something close to that. Yes. So it's, you, can't, you can't get around the fact that religious people care about what's true, and they, they purport to be making claims, truth claims, about the nature of reality. They, they think certain historical figures actually existed, some of them may be coming back. Yes, virgin birth. Books, you know, issue occasionally from a divine intelligence. And, and yes. so there's just no way to... Yes. I never met Gould, and, and, but I, I just can't believe the currency this idea has no, in science. I, I, I agree. It, it's become very fashionable among the scientific establishment. It was more or less endorsed by the U.S. National Academy of, yeah. of, of Sciences. Yeah. Um, as, for the, as for the separation, as for the idea that, that, that religion doesn't stray into science's territory, imagine the following scenario. Imagine that some sort of scientific evidence, perhaps DNA evidence, were discovered, um, perhaps somewhere in a cave in, in Palestine, uh, and it was demonstrated that, that, say, Jesus never had a father. I mean, I, it's inconceivable how that could happen. Just suppose it was, suppose there was scientific evidence. Can you imagine theologians saying, oh, that's science, that's not our department. We're not going to, they're not going to. I mean, they would love it. It would be meat and drink to them. Yeah, yeah. Many people who are not atheists believe that your efforts against religion are wasted and that the net result of your work is to simply offend religious people. There's a widespread myth that people can't be reasoned out of their faith. Please talk about this. It's just uncanny that there are the, the most memorable quips and quotes and, and phrases. Anything that is aphoristic seems to have undue influence on our thinking. And, and there's this aphorism that is usually attributed to Swift. And I think he, he says something like it. It's not, it. it's not quite the version that has been passed down to us. But this idea that you can't reason someone out of a view that he wasn't reasoned into. And this just strikes the mind of Homo sapiens as so obviously true and it, if you look at my inbox, it is so obviously false. <laughs> so tell me about the, your experience reasoning with, with your readers. I think it would be terribly pessimistic to think that you cannot reason. I mean, I, I, I think I'd just give up, probably die, right. if, I thought, if I thought I couldn't um, reason people out of their silliness. Um, <laughs> I, 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 would, I would accept, would, would you agree with this, that there are some people who, who demonstrably do know all the evidence and even understand the evidence, but yet still persist in? Yeah, well, so there's, there'll be a couple of questions that will bring us onto that territory, because I think there's more to reason about than science has tended to allow or that secular culture has tended to allow. So people have these intense transformative experiences, or they have these, uh, these, these hopes and fears uh, yes. that aren't captured by you saying, don't you understand the evidence for evolution? But there's just more of a, of a conversation that, that 
people don't tend to have. But yeah, I, I would agree that people certainly resist conclusions that they don't like I mean, the, the taste of. I, I, I can think of two examples. One, one I mentioned in the reception beforehand, um, a professor of astronomy somewhere in America who writes papers, mathematical papers in astronomical journals in which his mathematics, his mathematical ideas um, accept that the universe is 13.8 billion years old and yet he privately believes it's 6,000 years old. So here is a man who knows his physics, he knows his astronomy, he knows the evidence that the universe is 13 billion years old and yet so split-brained is he that he, he actually privately departs from everything in his professional life. Um, well, surely we have to accept that he, he I don't know, cannot be reasoned out, but I mean, he, he already knows the evidence and, and will not be reasoned out of his foolishness. Yeah, I didn't say that you could always succeed, but I, I think, and, and clearly there are, I have this, this, this bias, as you do, that if the conversation could just proceed long enough, the ground for science would continually be conquered and it never gets reversed. Yeah, and it, it is being and will be. It, yeah, it, yeah. It, it and, 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 and you never see the, I mean, this is a unidirectional conquest of territory. So you yes. never see a point about which science was once the authority, but now the best answer is religious. Yeah, that's right. Right, but you, you always see the reverse of that. And that's and right. that's and, and, and actually, most, most scientists who call themselves religious, if you actually probe them, I mean, they don't believe really stupid things like, like six-day creation and things. Most right. of them don't. Yeah, although I, I find that Christian scientists, not, not Christian scientists as in the, the, the cult, <laughs> But scientists who happen to be Christian believe much more than your average rabbi. This is this is a way. That's which, true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this Christ, Christianity is, and Muslim well, scientists no doubt return the favor. I, I get the feeling your average your average rabbi, like the, like your average chaplain of an Oxford college, doesn't actually believe in God at all. Yeah. <laughs> I've met that rabbi. <laughs> so. There's a couple of fun questions here that I just want, I just wanted to hear Richard react to. <laughs> Are there any biological extinctions that you would consider virtuous? For instance, should we eradicate the mosquito? You have 10 seconds to decide. It would, it would have to be more than one mosquito. There's the, there's the malaria mosquito, the yellow fever mosquito. Mm. Um, yeah, all mosquitoes. All mosquitoes. <laughs> Mosquitoes are unbelievably beautiful creatures. Um, no. uh, that's that's the most irrational thing ever. The great, the great um, uh, um, expert on fleas, um, and um, she, she, uh, she presented the Department of Zoology in, in, in Oxford with a gigantic blown-up photograph of a mosquito, and it was mm. a fantastic piece of work of art. And it, by a malevolent god. Yes. <laughs> if ever there were proof of God's malevolence, it's got to be the mosquito. I have no hesitation in killing individual mosquitoes. And... <laughs> but wouldn't, wouldn't you want to be a little more efficient than that with CRISPR <laughs> or something? I haven't thought about it before. I, I think I would not wish to completely extinguish 
Can I throw a little more on the balance? We, we've had reliably year after year, two million people killed by mosquito-borne illness. Know, and now, now it's cut down to, I think, 800,000. So we're making progress with bed nets, but. For some reason, I find myself less reluctant to extinguish the ma malarial parasite that the mosquito bears, but that's probably not, not very logical. Um, <laughs> Well, so and we, I mean, we, we have extinguished the smallpox virus, right. um, except for a few lab um, yeah. cultures. Yes, and then like geniuses, then we tell people how to synthesize it online. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the flip side of that, of course, is the Jurassic Park question. Should we reboot the T-Rex? Yes. If we yes. yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I wish, I wish, I mean, I thought the Jurassic Park method of doing it was incredibly ingenious, and I, I loved yeah. that. Um, what, what was not ingenious was the ludicrous injection of, was it chaos theory, or one of those nine days wonder um, fashionable I, th things. I don't but remember. The, but but the, the, the idea of, of getting mosquitoes in amber and extracting DNA and reconstructing dinosaurs, that's an amazingly good science fiction idea, if only it were possible. Unfortunately, uh, the DNA is too, is too old for that, to, for that to happen. If it were, I would definitely wish to see that done. <laughs> what, what could go wrong? <laughs> R Richard seems to want to live in a maximally dangerous world. <laughs> Filled with mosquitoes and T-Rexes. <laughs> so now, you and I were speaking about your books. You've written some very important books on 10 years apart, and so you have an anniversary this year of The Selfish Gene, which is the 40th. <laughs> and The Blind Watchmakers has its 30th anniversary. And climbing Mount, Impro Mount Improbable is the 20th, and then the God Delusion is the 10th. So I actually, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about the titles of the first two. The, the selfish gene has provoked an inordinate amount of confusion, and the blind watchmaker is, is a phrase that is, is useful to understand. So do you want to? Yes, talk the about selfish that? gene is misunderstood. I think mostly by those who have read it by title only. <laughs> as opposed to the rather substantial footnote to the title, which is the book itself. <laughs> um, it, it could equally well have been called the altruistic individual, um, because one of the main messages of the book is that selfish genes give rise to altruistic individuals. Um, so it is mostly a book about altruism, mostly a book about the opposite of selfishness. So it certainly should not be misunderstood as advocating selfishness or saying that we are, as a matter of fact, always selfish. Um, all it really means is that natural selection works at the level of the gene as opposed to any other level in the hierarchy of life. Mm. Um, so genes that, that work for their own survival are the ones that survive, tautologically enough, uh, and they are the ones that build bodies so we, all of us, contain genes that are, that are very, very good at surviving because they've come down through countless generations. Um, and they are copied 
accurately with very high fidelity from generation to generation, such that there are genes in you that have been around for hundreds of millions of years. And that's not true of anything else in the hierarchy of life. And individuals die. Um, they don't, I mean, they, they, they survive only as a means to the end of propagating the genes that built them. So individual bodies, organisms should be seen as vehicles, machines, built by the genes that ride inside them for passing on those very same genes. And it is the potential eternal long-lividness of genes that makes them the unit of selection. So that's really the meaning of, of the selfish gene. But it, as I say, the book could have been called The Altruistic Individual. It could have been called The Cooperative Gene for another reason. It could have been called The Immortal Gene, which is a more sort of... Um, Carl Sagan-esque uh, title. Sort of, it's, it, it's a more poetic title. And in some ways, I rather regret not calling it the immortal gene. Uh, but um, anyway, I'm stuck with it now. There's a, a, a common, I think, misunderstanding of evolution that leads people to believe that absolutely everything about us must have been selected for, otherwise it wouldn't exist. So, yes. So, can you, like, so people ask about... What's the evolutionary rationale for post-traumatic stress disorder or depression? Yes. Or is it, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there yes. is no conceivable one, but it, it need not be the case that everything we notice about ourselves yeah. was selected for, or that there's a gene for that. And this is or, very interesting. I mean, this, 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 we, this, I mean I, I'm actually a bit of an outlier here. I mean, I, I'm about as close as biologists come to accepting what you've described as a misconception. Mm. Um, because I do think that selection is incredibly powerful, um, and mathematical models show this. Um, J.B.S. Haldane, the great, um, one of the three founding fathers of population genetics, did a theoretical calculation in which he, he, say he postulated an extremely trivial character. Uh, it, he didn't mention it, but it, it, it might have been eyebrows. Suppose you, suppose you believe that eyebrows have been selected because they stop sweat running down your forehead into your eyes. And it, it sort of sounds totally trivial. How could that possibly save a life? Until you realize, that f f the first thing you might, you might realize is that it could save your life if you were about to be attacked by a lion and the, the, just a slight split second difference in how quickly you see the lion because you've got sweat in your, in your eyes. Since, since the, the invention of sunblock, I think that's undoubtedly true. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but Haldane actually did a, a, a mathematical calculation. He said, let us postulate a, a character so trivial that the difference between an individual who has it and an individual who doesn't have it um, is only one in a thousand. That's mm. to say, for every thousand individuals who have this, say, the eyebrows and survive, 999 who don't have it survive. Mm. So from any actuarial point of view, a, a life insurance calculator would say, well, it's totally trivial. But it's not trivial when you think that the genes concerned is represented in thousands of individuals in the population and through thousands of generations. That multiplies up the odds. Mm. And Haldane's calculation was that if you 
postulate that one in a thousand advantage. He then worked out how long would it take for the gene to spread from being, I forget exactly the figures, but say 1% of the population up to 50% uh, of, of the population. And it was a number of generations so short that it would be negligible on the geological time scale. Right, right. So it, it would appear to be an instantaneous piece of evolutionary change. Um, even though if the selection pressure was trivial. Well, actually, selection pressures in the wild, when they've been measured, have been far, far stronger than that. But there's another way of approaching the question you raise uh, when you say something like um, selective advantage in various psychological diseases or something like that. Um, it may be that you're asking the wrong question. It may be that um, by focusing on the particular characteristic which you asked the question about, you're ignoring the fact that there's something associated with that, which you've... Let me think of right. an example. Um, there's a... a, a you, you, you know that it, on, on, at, at night, if you've got a lamp out, outside, or a, a candle is better, if you've got a candle, insects, moths, say, come and sort of, as it were, commit suicide. I mean, they just burn themselves up in, in, the, in the candle. And you could ask the question, what on earth is the survival value of suicidal self-immolation behavior in moths? <laughs> well, it's the wrong question, because um, a, a probable explanation for it is that many insects use a light compass to steer a straight line. Lights at night, until humans came along and invented candles, lights at night were always at optical infinity. They were things like the moon, the stars, oh or the sun during the day. Um, and if you maintain a fixed angle relative to these rays that are coming from optical infinity, then you just cruise at a straight line, which is just what you want to do. A candle is not at optical infinity. And if you work out mathematically what happens if you maintain a fixed acute angle to the rays that are emanating in all directions out of a candle, you perform a neat logarithmic spiral into the candle flame. Mm. So this is an accidental byproduct of a mechanism which really does have survival value. You have to rephrase the question, what is the survival value of maintaining a fixed angle at light rays? And then you've got the, then you've got the answer. So to, to ask the question, what's the advantage of suicidal self-immolation, um, you've, you've shifted to the, to the wrong question. Right. And there are related issues, so there are things which provide some survival advantage in if you have one copy of the gene, but if you have both copies, yeah. then it's deleterious. Yeah. Yes, um, like sickle cell anemia. Right, yeah. right. So, well then, what do you do with the concept of a spandrel, though? Gould's concept of a spandrel, yeah. is that useful to think about? Yeah, okay, yes. <laughs> uh, spandrels are, um, Lewontid and Gould um, wrote a notorious and overrated paper um, in 1979, uh, in which Gould um, went to King's College, Cambridge, where there's the most beautiful, it's the most beautiful building, and the, the, the Gothic arches have gaps, for, for in, inevitably form gaps, which, which are called spandrels, and they actually have a, have a name, and they're often filled with or ornamentation. And the spandrels themselves are accidental byproducts of something which really matters, which is the Gothic arch. And so the point they were making is that um, things that we, that we, it's really almost the same point that I, I was making just, just now about asking the wrong question. Right. Spandrels are uh, 
you can't ask what's the purpose of a spandrel. That's it's right. Yes. Derivative yeah. of the thing exactly. you were building. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What are your thoughts about artificial intelligence? Please discuss its relationship to biological evolution and how it could develop in the future. I think it's a question for you, Sam. Yes. Am I, yeah. Well, I, I fear everyone's heard my thoughts on artificial intelligence. I find this increasingly interesting. It's, it's something that I became interested in very late. And in fact, unless you were in the AI community until very recently, the dogma that had been exported from computer science to neuroscience and psychology and, and adjacent fields was that AI basically hadn't panned out. I mean, just that it was just there was no real noticeable success there that should get anyone worried or particularly excited. Then all of a sudden people started making worried noises and then there were obvious gains in, in narrow AI that were getting sexier and sexier. And now it's, it, it was really the first time I thought about the implications of ongoing progress in building intelligent machines and progress at any rate. It really doesn't have to be that Moore's law continues indefinitely. It doesn't, we, we just need to keep going. And at a certain point, we will find ourselves in the presence of machines that are as intelligent as we are. They may not be human-like, although presumably we'll build them to be as much like ourselves in, in, in all the good ways as possible. But this interests me for, for many different reasons because it one, it, I'm, I'm actually worried, in terms of existential risk, it's, it's on my short list for things to actually worry about. But the flip side of that is that it's one of the most hopeful things. I mean, if anything is, seems intrinsically good, it's intelligence, and we want more of it. So insofar as it's reasonable to expect that we are going to make more and more progress automating things and, and building more intelligent systems, that seems very hopeful, and I think we can't but do it. And the, the other point of interest for me, and, and this is kind of my hobby horse, is that it's actually the, what we were talking about on stage last time, some years ago when I wrote The Moral Landscape. I'm interested in, in collapsing this perceived distance between facts and values, the idea that morality somehow is uncoupled to the world of, of science and truth claims. And I think that once we have to start building, and we, we even have to start even now with things like self-driving cars, once we start building our ethics into machines that within their domain are more powerful than we are, the sense that there are no better and worse answers to ethical questions, that we should all be moral relativists, that all cultures are, are equal with respect to what constitutes a good life, that just, I mean, that there's going to be somebody sitting at the computer waiting to code something. And if you don't if you don't put You've these, actually got to build in some moral you, values. You have to build in the yeah. values, and, if, and yeah. if you don't build it in, you are build, you're building in those values. So if you, if you build a self-driving car that isn't distinguishing between people and mailboxes, well, then you've built a very dangerous self-driving car. The more relevant tuning, which people have to confront, is do you want a car that... I mean, the car's going to have to make a choice between protecting the occupant and protecting pedestrians say. So now how much, how much risk do you want as the driver of the car to assume yeah. in order to spare the lives of occupants? So you, you're, you're constantly facing a trolley problem and you're the, you're the one to be sacrificed. And your, your point is that, that whereas trolley problems are these, are these hypothetical things where you, where you um, have to imagine you've got a, ru a runaway trolley and you're standing at points and, if you, and it's about to mow down five people and if you pull the 
lever to swing the points, it'll, it'll kill one person. Right. So you, with holding the lever in your hand, uh, have the dilemma, should I save five people and kill one? But, but you, you know that by your action in pulling the lever, you're, you're, you're going to kill a person who wouldn't otherwise have died. And I think, Sam, you're, you're saying, making the point that AI, I mean, automatic machines, robotic machines, are going to need to have a moral system built into them and that, yeah. so that the, the trolley problem is going to be faced by the programmer who's actually writing the software. Oh, it's, it's already yeah. the case, yeah. Yes. And, and it just will proceed from there. So just imagine a system more intelligent than ourselves that we have seeded with our morality. And again, this is going to be a morality that the smartest people we can find doing this work will have to agree by some consensus is the wisest morality we've got. And so the, obviously the Taliban and Al-Qaeda are not gonna get a vote in that particular project. <laughs> At that first pass, all, everything you've heard about moral relativism just goes out the window because we, we, are, we will be desperate to find the best answer we can find on every one of these questions and desperate to build a machine that when it, in the, the real limit case where it begins to make changes to itself, it doesn't make changes that we find, yes. in the worst case, incompatible with our survival. Making changes to itself is what more conventionally worries people. The, the von yeah. Neumann machine, which is, which is capable of, of, of reproducing and thereby possibly evolving by natural selection and, and um, sub completely supplanting humans, completely taking over. Um, this is, of course, a science fiction scenario, but it's not totally unrealistic. Not at all, given the fact that one path toward developing AI is to build genetic algorithms that, that function along uh, similar lines, yes. I mean, you know, that where there's a Darwinian principle of just it getting better and better in response to data and error correction, and it may, it, it may not even be clear how it has gotten better. So we could look forward to a time in the distant future when we have a hall like this filled with silicon and metal machines looking back and speculating on some far distant dawn age when the world was peopled by soft, squishy, <laughs> organic, water-based life forms. But the, um, the data would, transfer would, would be instantaneous, so there'd been no reason to come out here. <laughs> You just take a, the firmware upgrade. But, but maybe, now, but, but maybe what, the world will be a better and a happier place. Uh, well, my, my real fear is that it won't be illuminated by consciousness at all. Because I'm agnostic at the moment as to whether or not mere information processing and, and a scaling of intelligence by definition gets you consciousness. And it, it may, in fact, be the case that it gets you consciousness. I'm, I'm not conscious, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, it is a, a genuine, a very difficult philosophical problem, yeah. I, th I think. Why, why I mean, it, it would seem to be perfectly possible to build a machine or an animal or a human which, which can do, do all the things that we do, all the intelligent yeah. things that, that we do, all the life-saving things that we do, and yet not be conscious. And, and, and it, it's genuinely mysterious why we need to be conscious, I think. Yeah, I, and I, I think it remains so. I think it's because it's, consciousness is, the conscious part of you is generally the last to find out about what your mind just did. You know, you're, you're not, you're, you're playing catch up. And, and what you call consciousness is, 
in every respect an instance of some form of short-term memory. Now, it's, it's, you know, there's different kinds of memory, and this is integrated in different ways, but you are, I mean, there's just a transmission time for everything. So it's, it, you, you can't be aware of a perception or a sensation the instant it hits your brain, because it's hitting your brain isn't one discrete moment. And so there's a whole time of integration, and so you're, so the present moment is this, this layered, you know, subjectively speaking, it's this layering of memories, even when you are distinguishing the present from what you classically call a memory. And so it's, it's not, it is a genuine mystery why consciousness would be necessary, or what, what, what couldn't we, what couldn't a machine as complex as a, as a human brain do but for the emergence of this subjective sense, this inner dimension of, of experience. I don't even know what the solution would look like and whether it would be solved by biologists or by philosophers or by computer scientists, I, th I think. Uh... Well, I'm, I'm just worried that, yeah, and that's, that is, you've just articulated what philosophers call the, the hard problem the hard of consciousness. Problem, yeah. it's, it's hard to imagine what answer would fit in the space provided that would be truly explanatory. If you, if you just say that you know, this wiring diagram of, of neurons or any other computational units, you have a sufficient number, they're integrated in a certain way, they're firing at whatever hurts, that's what you need for consciousness. Let's just say that's so. So if you, if you lose those, that tuning, then there's nothing that it's like to be that system. The lights go out. But if you tune it up in precisely that way, well, then consciousness emerges. That, again, that strikes me as the, a kind of statement of a miracle. And so, I mean, that's, that's not the sort of explanatory work most other scientific theses do. Um, and so it is, a, it is a genuinely hard problem. But I, my concern with AI is that we will just ram past it and we will find ourselves in the presence of intelligent systems that will be so competent and we will have built them in a way to play upon our intuitions of, of emotion, and we will obviously build them, uh, appropriate emotions into them, and they'll be aware of our emotions, and if you finally build robots that, that are humanoid, that, that, that are so good that they're no longer uncanny to us, you get out of the, what's called the uncanny valley, and they no longer look creepy, now they just look perfect. I think we will lose the intuition that there was any mysterious question here to worry about, and we will just feel, because every intuition that you're in the presence of a sentient other will be played upon, we will just feel we are in the presence of consciousness without ever knowing that that's the case. So you, you would As I am with you now. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean it, it, well, quite. It is, I mean, you're, there's a, the fact that we are both the same sort of thing, that we have the same evolutionary history, and that overcomes this this notion of, of solipsism being, I mean, many kind of first year philosophy students think solipsism, the idea that maybe only I exist, everyone else is just a, a zombie. Many people think that's somehow the most parsimonious or the most economical view because, you know, I'm sure I exist. I'm sure I'm having an experience. I'm not sure about all you people. In fact, I can't even see you people. <laughs> have, you, but, do, do, have you heard Bertrand Russell's solipsism story? Bertrand Russell got a letter from a, from a lady who said, Dear Lord Russell, I'm so delighted to hear you are a solipsist. There are so few of us around right. these days. 
Yeah, that, that shows how untenable the, the view is. <laughs> Even a solipsist can't hold it. <laughs> but that's, so yeah, but the, the, the problem with solipsism is that there's actually an additional burden of explanation. To, I have to explain why something so similar to myself, yeah. biologically, as yourself, was born in the same way and yeah, developed, yes. Correct. Wouldn't be conscious. And so it's, it's, it is actually more parsimonious to assume that you are. But if we build these machines from a point of not knowing how consciousness arises in the physical universe, and we build them to be more and more competent, all of a sudden they, they pass the, the Turing test with flying colors. Well, when I first read about the Turing test, I, I never really, I sort of, didn't believe that I myself would ever think that, that a machine that passed the Turing test, you know, the, the, the Turing test, it, it, it's, it's where you, the, the way he originally formulated it was, was that you're sitting in a room with a, a communicating by teleprinter in those days, by, um, with either a human in another room or a computer in another room. And you're allowed to ask any questions you like and, to, and com communicate with this thing in any way you, you, you like. And if it's impossible for you to tell the difference, to know whether the computer or the, whether it's a computer or a human you're talking to, then the computer is conscious. Well, actually, so to go back to, that, that has been the way it's been talked about for many decades, but Turing's original paper didn't talk about consciousness, it talked about thought. So this is, this yes. is the measure of whether a computer is actually thinking. And that has been kind of updated to, to mean that that would be consciousness in a computer, which for those who are convinced that the hard problem is in fact hard, that doesn't make any sense. I, I, I suspect that, if, that if, if, if I was having a conversation with a robot like we are now, and the robot was speaking exactly the words you, you are speaking, I would believe it was conscious. Yeah, but and it would, the, the, the situation would be worse than that though, because it'll speak better than I do, and... I wouldn't will, bet on that. Uh, uh, well. <laughs> Let's hope they're they're not doing their job at, at Google DeepMind. If I hear from I hear from many of you who, that I say things like "gonna" a lot, so uh, we're presumably we're not going to put "gonna" into our uh, superintelligent AI. We're not gonna do that. So. But I, the situation will be worse because you'll, you'll be in the presence of something that looks human and speaks at least as well as any human you've met, but will have access to all of the world's information and will, maybe the first version of it won't, but the, some subsequent version will. It will be better at detecting your inner life than any human you've ever met. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, at a certain point, your phone will be more aware of your emotions than your spouse is. And that's either your worst nightmare or, your, or some <laughs> ultimate wish fulfillment. But it, so you'll be, you'll be in dialogue with something that is giving you more valid information than any human being you've ever met. And I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> My concern is that we'll, we'll lose sight of the problem. Moving on to a, a, a totally unrelated question, but you've both been accused of elitism in the past. Most recently, your views for your views on Trump and Brexit. Can you say something about the difference, if there is one, between combating anti-intellectualism and being elitist? That actually strikes me as an interesting problem yeah, because he, 
and I haven't thought much about this, but it seems to me just intuitively that the boundary between those two things isn't very clear. I think I want to stop being ashamed of being elitist. The point has been often made that when you are going to have an operation, you want an elite surgeon. Uh, when you're going to board an, a plane, you want an elite pilot. Um, yet, when, you're, when you want a president of the most powerful country in the world, you take almost no precautions whatever to try to get... <laughs> And um, in my, my country, Britain, has just undergone what amounts to a, a long-term catastrophe, uh, which is the decision to leave the European Union. Well, OK, let's not prejudge that. Let, let's say it, it might not be a catastrophe. But what is absolutely certain is that the issue of whether Britain should leave the European Union was and is a much too complicated and sophisticated question to be decided by idiots like me uh, and like the British people. Um, this, is, this is why we have a representative democracy rather than a plebiscite democracy. I could just about imagine having a, ple a plebiscite on some one issue which doesn't ramify, doesn't impinge upon everything else, like, say, fox hunting. I could imagine having a, ple a plebiscite on that because you decide to abolish fox hunting or not, the case may be, that doesn't immediately affect thousands of other things. The decision to leave the European Union has enormous repercussions which are of great complexity. You need a PhD in economics to understand the complexity. And yet Cameron, who will go down in history as, as a, 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 a moron, um, <laughs> For, for, reason, for reasons of, of, of internal politics within his, own, within his own party, put this to a plebiscite, to a, to a referendum. He didn't even take the precaution of building in the requirement of a two-thirds majority. In, in the United States, a, a, a constitutional amendment requires a two-thirds majority. There's a built-in resistance, there's a hurdle, there's a barrier, there's a bar that has to be cleared of a two-thirds majority, because it is a major, major change that has long-term implications. The Brexit decision is not something that's going, that can be reversed at the next election. It's, it's irrevocable. It's for keeps. Mm. Uh, and it was decided on a 50% majority, where it was quite clear from the polls that opinions were just jumping up and down like that. And the day of the vote, there happened to be a spike on that, on that day. Uh, and so now we're stuck with something, I won't say forever, but, but certainly for a, a very, very long time frame, well, well beyond the next election. I am an unashamed elitist with respect to, to this. The, some, of the, some of the reasons that I heard from personal acquaintance for why people voted to leave the European Union were, oh, well, it's nice to have a change. <laughs> Or, oh, well, I prefer the old blue passport to the European purple one. <laughs> this, 
this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of reason that, 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 that people voted. You know, you've probably read that the day after the Brexit vote, the most common thing to be Googled in Britain was, what is the EU? <laughs> so I think for all the odium that it gathers, I'm, I'm content to be described as an elitist. I once wrote an article a couple of elections ago when Sarah Palin was briefly... Uh, well, there's another example, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I wrote an article entitled, this is for Newsweek, entitled In Defense of Elitism, and yes. made some, oh, of the, right. some of the points of yeah. uh, the sort that you just made. And uh, they retitled it, When Atheists Attack. <laughs> so, that was when I understood that Newsweek was no longer a magazine. <laughs> We haven't evolved to live in affluent societies surrounded by millions of strangers, much less a global civilization, and seem poorly adapted to the anonymity and isolation that affluence and globalism bring. For instance, the modern world is plagued by rates of depression and suicide that are unheard of in tribal societies. Our culture privileges consumption over community and meaning. Indeed, many would say this is an argument in favor of religion. How can apes like ourselves truly flourish? Yes. That's, uh, well, let's, let's take the first, uh, that, that is a, an important question. It is, yes. But let's take the first part first, because it, it, it lands in a, in a question that we've heard before, which is, and, and in fact, it's, it's, it's also here in, in some other form, you know, how do, how do non-believers, how do purely rational people find meaning in life and, and, and all of that? But the first part is we are at odds with our our ape-like, you know, small group, tribal, primate genome. And we, we have not evolved to be in a condition of full-time anonymity with most of the people we come in contact with. And so when you think of our online lives, when you think of even this circumstance, this is very unnatural. I mean, just imagine getting something like 1,400 people in this room now. Imagine getting 1,400 chimpanzees together in a room. <laughs> it doesn't work very well for... for reasons that we can explain. And we have this ability to now group together in ways that may be at odds with what, what we are by um, you know, our ape-like ancestry. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's, it's remarkable how, how well we do. I and mean, in, in, Although it's probably true to say that a lot of the mental illness that plagues us is because for this very reason. Nevertheless, considering how astonishingly different our environment is now, especially our social environment from, mm. from our ape ancestry. We don't do too badly, do we, really? Um, I mean, there, there, there are certain other things. It's not, it's not just the social environment. It's things like the, um, the, fact, the fact that we are too fond of sugar um, because in our ape ancestry, Sugar was very difficult to get, and you couldn't get too much of it. And now you can, now you can get too much of it. That's true of food generally. Um, so there, there, there are things like that. But um, well, do you think we could be selecting for personality traits that are? I mean, take psychopathy. Whatever the genetic underpinnings of psychopathy are, when you imagine living in a little village 50,000 years ago where you 
knew everyone. He knew everyone, yeah. And, not, and you're, you're guaranteed, I mean, if, if, you, are, if you meet a stranger, that's, that's uh, very likely to be a, a circumstance of violence. Everyone who's in your tribe is someone you know intimately, and this will always be the case. So there's no, it's not even a question of having a reputation. It's, it's everyone knows everyone. And so you just imagine the fate of a psychopath in that environment. That, that tends to end pretty swiftly with the angered people in the tribe exiling or, or killing him. But now, so now we live in a world where psychopaths can always move on to new contexts and, and bilk or otherwise harm and manipulate new people. Do you think we, I mean, I guess a, there's an underlying question here. Evolution hasn't stopped, right? So could we be selecting for, in a few short generations, like with eyebrows, a kind of personality disorder that has a genetic... Well, that, that would be a negative thing. But a positive way of looking at it is that we, we now meet strangers every day. We now meet people that we're never going to ever see again, never, never seen in the past. Whereas, as you say, in our, in our ape ancestry, we lived in villages or small bands of probably a maximum of 150 people, has been, has been suggested, mm-hmm. where... Not only did you know everybody, but everybody was, was kin. Yeah. Um, you, they were cousins, second cousins, and so on. Well, it, you can make a good case for why we have altruism and empathy, that we lived in small bands where everybody was kin and everybody knew everybody else, and so that favors granted to other people could be reciprocated at some later date. And there was a sort of... That, that's probably why we have such a strong sense of... Of, of debt, a strong sense of guilt, a strong sense of who owes what to whom, a strong sense of reputation, who has a good reputation for being uh, socially generous and who has a good reputation for being, a bad reputation for being, for, for, for being mean. Um, those good impulses that evolved under conditions of small villages are now generalized into the population at large, mm. such that most of us now have expanded our feelings of generosity and empathy to anyone we meet, to a limited extent at least. So if we, if we see somebody in distress, we have an impulse to try to comfort them or give them money or, or look, look after them in, in, in some way. And this could probably be regarded as a kind of mistake um, a, a blessed mistake, a mistake that, that uh, I, would, I would welcome, um, based upon the fact that in, in our primitive small village world, the rule, the rule of thumb, be good to everyone you meet, mm. um, was beneficial because everyone you meet was either kin or, and or a potential reciprocator. Nowadays, every, everyone you meet is not kin and is not a potential reciprocator, but the rule of thumb remains. Um, and we're yeah. still mostly pretty nice. Um, yeah, except but even there, so there, in many respects, it's a bad rule of thumb. Do you know, do you know Paul Bloom, the psychologist? Yes, yeah. so, so he's done some great work in this area. He has a book coming out uh, entitled Against Empathy, for which he is going to reap the whirlwind. <laughs> but he, his point is that empathy is actually the wrong piece of software for making moral decisions most of the time. We, we have this, our empathy module is one that gets highly provoked to action by individual personal stories and pictures of cute kids and puppies and all the rest. But we just can 
blithely ignore statistics and you know, so the numbers of people who die in, you know, let's say, a civil war like Syria now, the, more, the eyes of the moral yeah. conscience just glaze yeah. over. Yeah. You know, what's the difference between 100,000 and 400,000? You know, I don't know. I've never seen that many things. And yet you tell me about one kid, and, and yeah. this is, people have done fascinating and really harrowing research on this topic. Paul, Paul Slovic has done these experiments where he, you, you show people one needy little child and ask them to, you know, this is now an experimental context, ask them to give money and how much would you give? And then you show them the same needy little child, but with her brother, and people reliably give less. And then you show the, the sister and the brother in a group of eight needy little children, and people reliably give less. And they care less the more the problem scales. Yeah. And then when you add statistics, and you say this, you know, this one little girl named- There's a million. Yeah, there's a, there's a million just like her, yeah. they give less. And so this is, this is pretty clear, this is a bug, not a feature. Yeah. So let's come back to the evolution question. I mean, obviously, most people assume that because we exert so much control over our environment now that the forces of natural selection are dampened to the point of almost being negligible. Is that, I mean, there's things like lactose tolerance, that seems like a reasonably recent yeah, gene. Yeah, that, that, that's a good example where, where um, quite, quite clearly natural selection has been going on quite rapidly. In, in, in it's like 5,000 years or something. 2,000 years. Um, and similarly, the, the differences between peoples in different parts of the world, I mean, differences in the, the Inuit in the Arctic and, um, and the Dinka in, in the Nile and, and region and, and the pygmies in the, in the African forests and so on, these, these are undoubtedly selective differences which have come about within, let's say, tens of thousands of years. Um, so... Uh, but what, what do you think is happening now, given our reliance on technology and the way in which more or less everyone, I mean, certainly in the developed world, you can survive you to can the point You can survive of, long enough to reproduce. Yeah, to reproduce. Yes. So um, the emphasis then comes down more to who reproduces rather than who lives. Right. Um, because family size is not uniform, and family size is often determined by cultural uh, factors, maybe religious factors. Um, yeah, what do you make of the fact that secularism seems to correlate with low birth rate and yes, well, religious um, people have 10 kids per family in certain contexts? I think I, I won't go there. So. <laughs> <laughs> you, you will keep the mosquitoes in for, for the rest of time, but you won't go there. I would, I would like to go there, but I, perhaps I better not. Uh, we're, we're being given the cue that we should move on to, to audience questions. Okay. Um, I want to ask one we'll more. We'll save though. that one up for, for tomorrow night, maybe. Okay. But, uh, one more just to um, round out that final topic. Do you think humans should take charge of their own evolution? Did I just say evolution the way Brits do? Um, you see the power of, of good company? That's the only word I know where, where we are actually embarrassed about how to, how to pronounce right. the word. <laughs> you mean Brits are embarrassed about it? I, yeah. I. I, I was sufficiently embarrassed to ask a, a Latin scholar what is, what is the correct pronunciation. Right. Not that it matters, it, it is in fact evolution, but... but, but. <laughs> I will take that instruction. So, do you think we should take charge of our evolution through genetic engineering, not only eradicating genetic diseases, 
but improving intelligence and physical strength? And wouldn't this usher in a new age of eugenics? Well, uh, I am tempted by that. It's, a, it's highly unfashionable. Um, and, uh, and I think, I think Hitler is partly to blame for that, because, because Hitler notoriously tried to, tried to do that. I, I, first of all, most people accept, most moral philosophers accept the distinction between negative eugenics, where you try to get rid of horrible hereditary diseases. And I think few people would object to that. Um, but positive eugenics, where you actually try to, to um, improve musical ability or mathematical ability or ability to do the high jump or to run 100 meters or whatever. There I would make a distinction between compulsory eugenic breeding for posit posit positive eugenics, such as Hitler in, in, imposed, and um, the freedom of parents to, to, if the technology were available, which it isn't yet, to, to breed for something that they, that, that, that they like the idea of, like musical ability. So let, let me just limit myself to pointing out that people don't on the whole regard it as a major moral sin for parents to encourage to the point of forcing children to have music lessons. Right. Um, so if, it, if it's education, then the most a parent will be accused of is of being a bit dictatorial and, and telling the child, look, you haven't done your piano practice today, go and do it or, 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 or else. Um, and, and, that, that, and that is regarded as much, much more morally acceptable than say, if the technology were available to do IVF and, you know, in vitro fertilization, you, you get a number of eggs, of, of um, fertilized eggs, and you can extract, say, at the eight cell stage, you can extract one cell and examine its genes. And at present, you can do that for um, the, the sort of major genetic diseases, mm -hmm. and you can make sure that the the embryo that you re-implant back in the woman is the one that doesn't have Huntington's career, whatever it is. Um, if it became possible to, to put back into the woman the one that has the J.S. Bach gene for musical genius, um, would it be immoral to do that? And I can't see that it would. Well, on the contrary, I think it would be immoral to, now provided this works and it's safe and there's no, no downside, to decline to do that, but then force the kid to take piano lessons. Yes. That seems truly sadistic. So, I mean, eugenics has become a dirty word, but, but um, and, and, and even saying that, I'll, I'll get a lot of stick for. Um, but but I, I, I think you're absolutely right there. Well, so just one question to follow up here, because I genuinely don't know. I mean, there's no guarantee that the genes that control things we like about ourselves, like intelligence, when you dial them up or select for the variants that give a propensity to increased intelligence, you could, and, and there's some evidence that this is the case, you could be also increasing the propensity for certain diseases. Certainly you could. And, um, and yes. so there's no, no. there's no guarantee that we'll ever be able, for just dealing purely with the biological yeah. substrate, ever be able to, to shoot for the mark of the good thing we want without increasing that's the totally likelihood that you're going to be and, in, a, and, in a wheelchair and, I mean, or something. That, that, that's, that would be very, very true for doing what Hitler tried to do, which is, which is doing what we do with domestic animals. Um, and right. say, 
you uh, do, um, say mating female high jumpers with male high jumpers to try to breed a race of Olympic winners in 500 years' time, that almost certainly would have bad effects. Right. Uh, because you'd almost certainly be breeding people who were deficient in some other respect. But if you take the IVF case, it's quite interesting because you've got in, in a petri dish, you've got say half a dozen eight cell embryos and you're going to implant back in the woman one or two of them. And at present, you, you, you put them back at random. So you could be getting the musical genius one, but you might not be. So it's, it's harder to make the case that to, to choose one non-randomly, to choose to put back the one for mathematical ability. By the way, all this is totally hypothetical. It, it couldn't possibly be done yet. Don't do this at home. No. <laughs> um, the, 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 this, is, this is in the future. Um, when, when you're going to, when you've already got, you're going to pick two of these eight, two of these ten embryos out and put two of them back. Um, do you do it at random, which is what happens at present, or do you exercise the knowledge that you have that this one has musical ability and that one doesn't? It seems to me that that's far less likely. In fact, I don't see why it would have the, the undesirable effects that selective breeding for um, some particular characteristic, as in breeding for milk yield in cows or fast running in horses would. Well, it, it does come back to the, the point raised earlier where some genes, when you have only one copy, give you a benefit, but yeah. two copies is, yeah. is decisively negative. Yes. Um, and I think there's, there's some ev evidence for that with intelligence, with the condition of uh, uh, torsion dystonia, which is a, a muscle spasm condition that nobody would like, but if, so if you have two copies, you get that. If you have yes. one copy, you, yes. you're, you're predisposed towards some increment of... Yeah. I think we, we are, we're under orders to, to yeah. stop our conversation. So now to your questions. <laughs> Can we have the lights up? Can we have the lights up? Yes, thank you. Ah, there you are. We have a microphone in the orchestra and one up there, so we're going to do alternating questions. And... Hi. So I think everyone here, most of us, kind of see how absurd, really absurd religious people can be. But there are a lot of them. I think we all meet people who aren't so absurd, these seemingly innocuous religious people who aren't young earth creationists and aren't homophobic and things like that. Do you still wish these people to be non-religious? Do you still think the world would be better if they were not? Other things being equal, yes. Yeah. I mean, how, how would it not be? I, I, I can't imagine. Um, well, yeah, so I, mean, I, I don't want to purge them or anything like, like that. <laughs> I, I guess the, 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 it's important to specify what you mean by non-religious. Clearly, we want people to be rational, open to the best evidence, open to the best arguments, and that just so happens to have the very seditious effect of destroying much of what people count as being religious. But I mean, there are experiences that I would be happy for people to have, but I just want them to, to interpret them differently or interpret them honestly. So I, mean, I, don't, I don't mind people having the experience of, of ecstasy or awe or uh, even, to, even to a point where 
it's exactly the sort of experience that, ju that has justified the religious claims that people have made for thousands of years. But what I don't want them to do is then lie to themselves and to other people about what those experiences prove or mean. And so, so to, to take someone like you know, Francis Collins, who's running the NIH, he's a medical geneticist, and, but he's also an evangelical Christian. And he, he came to his faith. I mean, when you hear how he came to it, you'll know the ground had been prepared. He came to it, he was hiking, and he came upon a frozen waterfall. And it was surprisingly frozen in three streams. And this put him in mind of, of the Holy Trinity. And now this is a verbatim quote. Then I fell to my knees in the dewy grass and gave myself to Christ. So that is that leap there from the frozen waterfall to Christ <laughs> that, you know, I, where I would want to push back against the religious interpretation. To be fair, he, he is not a, a creationist. He's not a young no, creationist. No. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm curious about how the, you know, rapid rise of information technology over the past you know, 10, 15 years and the distribution amongst the entire population has sort of affected the way that we really talk to each other and, and not only that, but share information. And, and I'm curious if you guys think that there's a better way that we could have been designing our systems and also whether or not, you know, the level of consumption of, of digital media versus how people used to consume print media and, and you know, read newspapers, books, whatever, if you think that there is a decline in reading and, uh, you know, a, a, a extension of, of this sort of new media, which may not be as intellectually stimulating for the population. Am I the only one in this room who's starting to find it difficult to actually read long books? Is that, have you noticed this, that it's getting harder to read a 600-page book? You know, I feel like I'm a canary in the coal mine for this, but I, I, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing that, yeah. that it's, um, I mean, it is information coming in other ways, but I think it does pose certain problems. I mean, it goes back to the, the question asked earlier about anonymity and distance and the fact that so much of our life is online now. But it also goes back to the thing we were talking about, about the villages with 150 people. Mm -hmm. um, in, in a funny kind of way, uh, we, we, we've, uh, uh, we may be reconstructing villages uh, which are not geographically located but distributed around the world and they're, we, they're sometimes referred to as echo chambers um, yeah. where you, you, you have a group of internet friends that you interact with and you're given a, a distorted impression for world opinion because you only listen to the people in your own electronic village. Um, and uh, we probably all suffered from that to some extent. It's quite an interesting sociological phenomenon, I think. Yeah. I mean, this is a paradox that many people have remarked on, that, that we have instantaneous access to more information than anyone has ever had access to. And it should be, and it really is easier and easier and easier to get the truth, to get the best facts, to, to debunk a lie. And yet it's also easier to curate your access to facts in such a way as to be in an echo chamber for the rest of your life. And, and you could go, you just can go through the looking glass on any one of these things and be a conspiracy theorist of any flavor forever. And because you're never meeting, or you're generally not meeting these people, 
everything has this, you know, online, everything has the same stature. You don't see that the website that is proving to you that 9-11 was a conspiracy, uh, uh, you know, to, to bring down the buildings. You don't know that the person who coded that website was a, you know, 16-year-old in, in his underpants. Um, and it, you're, you're treating it like, like the, a bunch of Nobel laureates lined up and told you the, the, the truth. Sorry for any truthers out there who didn't like that, Philip. I'm curious to know what your opinion is of Elon Musk's argument that we're living in a simulation. And if you're unfamiliar with it, I can sum it up in 20 seconds. But no, no, I'm, I'm familiar with it. <laughs> it made it to this part of the simulation. It's, a, it's actually not his argument. It's not, I'm not even sure it originates with Nick Bostrom. It's, it, Nick Bostrom is the philosopher at Oxford who's really popularized this, this argument. He's also written what I consider the best full treatment of the, 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 the reasons to be scared about the superintelligent AI. He wrote a book called Superintelligence, which is, which is fantastic. But he, he's made a lot of hay out of this simulation argument. And the argument, there are various forms of the argument, but one is that just imagine you know, the, the, some future in which we can simulate whole worlds in our computers Invariably, we're going to, to, you know, if provided mind and consciousness is just a matter of information processing, and certainly most scientists think that's the case, then we'll be able to simulate conscious beings like ourselves in our machines, and we will do that, and it seems almost by definition, then simulated worlds will outnumber real worlds by a factor of, you know, trillions. It's just, it's just a matter of having a, a sufficiently large cloud, which, is, which we will certainly have if we don't destroy ourselves. So, if you imagine that that's where everything's headed, well, then you think that the chances are, just as a matter of probability, that it's far more likely that the fact that you find yourself in a world, it's far more likely that you have found yourself in a simulated one than, than a real one. Again, there are many variants of this. You could, be, you could think about alien civilizations doing this, or you could just think about the future of humanity doing this. And, and my personal version is a future of humanity in which the Mormons do this, and in this world, Mormonism is true because they've, they've built it into their simulation. Won't that be a surprise, Richard? I've, I, I first met this in rather a good science fiction story by Daniel F. Galloy called Counterfeit World, and in, in which it's a, it's a super advent, adventure story, and the, and the hero eventually discovers that, that, we, that, we, that we are indeed in us. Well, he, 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 he goes down into the simulated world in order to repair some, some fault. Mm. And he comes back into what he thinks is the real world, only to discover that that is itself a simulated world from, from yet, uh, yet higher up. It's a, it's a good story. He's a good science fiction writer. What's up, guys? Thanks for coming. I um, just want to thank you guys both. You guys have really helped me um, just throughout my life. But I'm also curious to know, which do you think would come first, an openly gay president or an openly atheist president? Uh, that's... Well, I'd be very happy yeah. with either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and indeed, and with an openly female president, by the way, as well.
I'm going to resist the temptation to say something about the election. I think <laughs> you've all heard quite enough from me on that already. But I He's think, so well, I mean, the, the, aren't you? Aren't you? I mean, it is amazing how this is to take stock of how much progress we might yet make very quickly on the religion front. The the progress we've made with gay rights. I mean, that's that, what's that blindingly thing. fast. That's so encouraging. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that, that, by the way, is the, is the model that our openly secular campaign is taking. The, 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 gay, the gay rights movement has been so successful in such an astonishingly short time in raising consciousness and becoming accepted in American society and British society. Um, and so I think there's every hope that we can do the same thing for, uh, for uh, free thinkers, because it would have been, a few decades ago, it would have been inconceivable that the gay, the gay people gay community would have made such, such progress as they have. So I, I have every hope that we can follow their example. Hi. Um, sorry to go back to AI, uh, oh. but Sam, you mentioned briefly, correct me if I'm wrong, that of course we should want more intelligence in the mm. world, but then you're also agnostic to, uh, to the connection between intelligence and consciousness. And I know that you value the consciousness of, or the um, the flourishing of conscious creatures. So why should we value intelligence? And I realize that's a weird question to ask in a room like this. But no, well, we no, it's a, it's a good question. If you, in that case, if you imagine that intelligence and consciousness can come apart and we could build more and more intelligent machines without necessarily building consciousness, there are many reasons why that should be worrisome and it also it absolves us of a few concerns because one concern is that we'll build more and more intelligent machines that if they by definition become conscious, they will be able to suffer. And then we're building machines that can suffer. And then when you turn these machines off, have you committed a murder? I mean, is, is it like turning off your, your mother <laughs> or your child? It's a, I mean, these are real ethical questions. And it's, a, it's a, the term of jargon in this space, like in, in Bostrom's book, is mind crime. The idea that we'll, we'll be building machines that you know, we're enslaving. I mean, do these machines like to work for us? Do they like the automaticity of their, their lives? But at a certain point, they'll be, they might be able to tell us, and if we think they're conscious, well, then we, we, have, we suddenly have opened up a, a landscape of, of ethical concern and obligation toward creatures that may, in fact, be able to suffer more than we can. I mean, maybe they can suffer unimaginably or be deprived of happiness that is unimaginably great. You know, and so it's... But if, if, if intelligence is not something that need be associated with consciousness, at, even at a superhuman level, then the question is, how much intelligence do we want access to for our own conscious purposes? And I think we want quite a lot. I think we want machines that can solve puzzles in economics and in climate science and in neuroscience and in genetics that we, we can't seem to solve ourselves or, or or solve in a, in a time frame that is as useful as it would be if we could solve them, solve them overnight. In my view, intelligence is, leave aside all of the beauty it gives us access to. I mean, it, basically, it is the thing that allows us to safeguard everything we care about. You know, the moment we find out that some pandemic has been unleashed through happenstance on the earth and we need a cure for it, well, how long does it take for us to develop that cure? The difference between 15 minutes and 15 years is huge, and 
that difference really is a matter of intelligence on some level. It's not obvious that intelligence goes with the ability to suffer either, by the way. No, it just um, if con consciousness. If you think about what, what suffering is for, um, it's, it's to prevent the, the, the creature from repeating a mistake, from doing something which, I mean, pain is a, is a, sub, is a sort of surrogate for death. And so if an animal does something that causes it pain, uh, it, it, it's given a warning, don't do that again. Well, um, you could make the case that an, an animal, an organism, that uh, is not very intelligent, requires more pain mm. in order to be deterred from repeating a, um, an unfortunate um, misstep. And so it, it might be that our ethical concern for animals in proportion to their intelligence, and we, uh, we, we, we care more about pain in, 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 in cows than in fish, hmm. we could be doing the wrong thing because it could be that, that a less intelligent uh, an animal actually is more capable of feeling pain um, than, that's a bit of an aside, but it occurred yeah. to me while you were talking. It's an aside that just screwed up dinner. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Sam, what if you found to be more effective in disempowering organized religion, focusing on it like you did with the end of faith, or sort of passing it by like you did with waking up? You know, I, I just I have no way of knowing, really. I mean, it would just be pure intuition. I, I, th I think there are moments for both, but yeah, it, it's just I, I, would, I would just be guessing. The missing piece, of, and again, in waking up, I, I, don't, I certainly don't provide every piece that's missing, but the, the thing that will really be good to do at a certain point is to articulate a, an ethically and aesthetically attractive way of meeting all of the needs that people, religious people, think they have, and, and many they, they think they have for good reason. And this, you know, so building community and ritual and having a reason to gather once a week for some experience of profundity. I mean, all of this, I think, is a, is a missing piece in secularism. And people get it in a piecemeal way. They get it just in, in a haphazard way. They find it in other, they find it in entertainment and in art, and they go to the museum, or they, they go to a sporting event, or they, they go, they have a picnic, or they go to a, a TED conference, or they, 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 find, they, they gravitate toward things that scratch the itch a little bit, but I think if, if the counterpoint to, if, if the explicit counterpoint to religion of atheism or, or secularism is going to be, you know, when it is offered fully compelling to religious people, the replacements for what they care about have to be pretty salient in the end. I don't think you can replace everything that people care about in that space, but, and I've, you know, I've said this before, like when you lose your belief in Santa Claus, it's not like the thing that replaces it precisely fills that Santa Claus-shaped hole in, in your life. <laughs> but you, you, you do move on to other things that are, are rewarding, and, and um, we, we need to make that in a, in a contemplative, ethical, communitarian sense very obvious. Okay, this is the last question. Oh. Oh. Sometimes young people, you know, ask me, you know, what, what do you do, how do you, you know, as a free thinker or atheist, you know, what, what do you do to, uh, to remember somebody at a funeral? And I just say, you know, just talk about things you remember about them. 
I wonder if you could maybe uh, talk about some, some uh, stories that we may not have heard uh, about uh, your, friend's, your friend, Crystal Pitches. It's, it's a depressing note to end on, but I mean, the, the, the thing that was so obvious to me from a purely personal, selfish side that uh, was wrong with Hitch dying was that I had so little time with him. I really, I, the last dinner I had with him, when he had cancer, we did a debate against two rabbis in, in um, Los Angeles, and um, we had dinner before that, and I was sitting across from him, and he was very sick. I mean, you can watch that debate. I mean, it was, it was quite amazing to me, even at that point, that he made the trip for that debate. But I realized that it was the first dinner I had had alone with him. You know, I had maybe, you know, half a dozen dinners with him in my life, but this was the first time it was just me and Hitch at dinner. And so it's just good touch back to that question about our online lives. I have many relationships where, like, like my relationship with you, so much of it has been virtual. You know, like with my relationship with even a greater example, someone like Steve Pinker, my relationship with him is almost entirely email. You know, I, and it's a real, it's, it's, you know, I really value my relationship with Steve. He's, he's, he's a mentor to me. But we have been, you know, you and I have been on stage together you know, many more times than I have been with, with, with Steve. And, and the same was true uh, of Hitch. And so it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a real lost opportunity. I just feel like I've met him too late, too. Yeah. And we, we had a wonderful encounter in the so-called Four Horsemen discussion, which took place in his, his apartment in, in Washington, where there was you, Sam, me, um, Hitch, and Dan Dennett, and we had a four-way conversation with no chairman, no moderator. I think we all got about equal time. It was a very, very fruitful, agreeable conversation. Um, he was, I think, the most eloquent person I've ever met. Uh, incredibly fluent, articulate speaker with an enormous fund of knowledge which he could tap into with immediate, rapid-fire access. Um, I once wrote, if you're ever invited to have a debate against Christopher Hitchens' decline. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think I was the last person to do a major interview with him. I did that on behalf of the New Statesman magazine in Britain. I came to Texas and uh, spent a long time with him. You can read that interview. Um, the thing that I remember most was that I confessed that I was um, uneasy about being constantly described as strident. And he said, don't you ever stop being strident. Um, he was most emphatic about this, that, 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 that we have to come out with all guns blazing. But he, but he did that himself, but he did it with courtesy and consideration and without, I think, ever making enemies. Hmm. Thank you all.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As I said, it was really an honor to get a chance to share the stage with Richard. That does not happen often enough. And I will bring you the audio from the other event when I get it. But um, doing these events made me think that I could do a live podcast tour and perhaps speak to a different person in each city. And so this is something I'm thinking about doing in the new year, probably in the second half of the year, because it takes about six months to produce an event well. Needless to say, those of you who are supporting the podcast through my website or through Patreon will be given first crack at the tickets. It would just be a blast to fill a large room with diehard podcast listeners in places like New York and Toronto and Houston and Chicago. And as I did with Richard, I would go out to you for all the topics. Anyway, more to come on that front. Once again, please join my email list if you want to hear about these things in a timely way, because each of these events with Richard sold out in 48 hours, and that was a 1,400-seat room. Ten days after I announced those events on email, I was hearing from people on social media saying, why the hell didn't I hear about these events? I live 10 minutes away. Not being on my email list is why. And as always, if you want to support the podcast, there are several ways to do that. And you can find them at samharris.org forward slash support. Until next time. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.